I want to move us now to, you mentioned the diabetes a couple of times, and I know that as we get older, is it something like 88% of the American population, we believe has insulin resistance? I think I, I was reading that stat recently. And I know as we get into menopause, even a higher percentage of us have insulin resistance. So this is another one of my new passions. And I do want to talk about it because I wanted to hear your thoughts on carbs, eating carbs, and also insulin resistance. And how do we manage that blood sugar? Because blood sugar is so important for so many different things in our body. I wanted to just go there now because I think that's such a nice segue into understanding we're talking about food, we're talking about eliminating oils. How does, how does insulin resistance play into all of this? So insulin resistance is, is about as prevalent as you said, and it's the underlying condition, you know, before you get diabetes, right? Maybe maybe listeners probably already know that, but, um, and most people who are overweight are insulin resistant and many people who are normal weight are insulin resistant too. So it's a super common thing. And it's, it's, we, we think about it as like just this hormone insulin isn't working right in the body. And, um, the explanation for it didn't exist, um, in a satisfying way. And so that's actually a big subject of the fat burn fix. Um, so I would love to come back on your show and talk about that, but the, the, the short explanation is that because all these seed oils, uh, are so unstable, they don't provide ourselves with energy and they create a need for our bodies to have more of an alternative source of energy. Um, other than what our bodies are supposed to be able to burn, which is our own body fat, right? That's what it's supposed to be. Um, so they create a need for more sugar in our bloodstream at all times. So that is actually really insulin resistance. Like it's described from a different standpoint, um, but that's what it is. You, you, you take anybody who's insulin resistant, you check their fasting blood sugar and it's gonna be a little bit high. It's, and they're going to feel bad when their blood sugar level gets down into that normal range, which includes like 65, right? So 65 now is flagged as an abnormal on the labs, but that's because so many people have this problem that it's become the new normal and the lab directors just, you know, they shift as the averages shift. Back when I was in medical school, it was 65 was the, was the low limit of normal. Um, and, and now it's like 70 on some labs. So that sounds like a small, like nitpicky little difference, but it's a huge difference. Um, and, and, and w- there's not a lot of sugar in your bloodstream at any given time. And that's a real problem. If your body's more needs more sugar then your bloodstream was really designed to safely carry, but that, that is the essence of insulin resistance. Your body has a need for more sugar. So, so this is, this is why a lot of folks are not able to do intermittent fasting right off the bat, because their blood sugar level will get down into now that normal range, but that's not enough. And so they'll get hungry and they think it's a lack of willpower, but it's their metabolism. It's their metabolism that has been shifted. And so one of the things that I recommend is understanding what kind of carbohydrates can you have that will give you just this little bit of blood sugar stabilization so that you don't have to convert protein into sugar. Cause that's kind of the body's backup plan. If you ever need sugar, it'll convert your muscle into sugar or your brain or whatever it's got, you know, bones. I think that's a big reason why if folks out there are worried about their bone health, um, then burning, you know, not being able to burn your own body fat um, and having hypoglycemia 
is an indication that your, your bones just might be getting used for protein. So your body will scour protein for it wherever it can to keep that blood sugar up. If you're on a, you know, a lower carb diet when you're not really ready, or if you're doing intermittent fasting when you're not really ready. So I, I recommend that folks, um, if they are going to consume carbohydrates, they consume what I recommend, uh, what I call slow digesting carbohydrates, which is another word for low glycemic index. But I don't like that term because it's not obviously meaningful to people. So slow digesting is exactly what it says. It takes a while to for your digestive system to break down so it won't spike your blood sugar and then it won't spike your insulin. And in that, when you're insulin resistant, if you have an insulin spike, you very often have a crash later on because everything's just slowed down. So when your blood sugar drops, you're still pumping out too much insulin and you're still, you're going to have a, you know, a, a blood sugar crash. It's going to go below your normal. Um, but I would say that probably, at least 75% of, of folks um, over the age of 30 have this issue of insulin, like symptomatic insulin resistance by you'll feel it because you're going to feel bad when you're hungry. You're going to feel brain fog or concentration problems. And so the cause of that is eating more healthy fats and eating slow diet. I'm sorry. The cause of that is, is the bad fats. The solution is eating more of the healthy fats and in every meal, trying to get a little bit that will sustain your energy a little bit. And then if you want to have carbohydrates, I recommend just simple things like sprouted grain bread or um, uh, using beans and nuts and seeds, because those are great sources of healthy fats too, and slow digesting carbohydrates and even some protein. They're, they're so nutritious compared to, yeah, I mean, sprouted grain bread is pretty good because they sprout that stuff. Um, and, but, you know, compared to like whole grains, right? I'm not a big fan of whole grain flour because the pulverized flour is not slow digesting anymore. So would you say that you're a fan of a keto or paleo diet? Absolutely. Those are great diets because they direct people to healthy fats. And what I love about the paleo diet is that they talk about a little bit more often about like whether the animals themselves were pastured you know, and, and properly fed. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, paleo, even though they don't include dairy, which I, I, I recommend dairy if you, if you're tolerant to it. Um, mm -hmm. um, and they don't, wouldn't include sprouted grains in that, it, you know, there's still, there's still a lot of good, it's a good diet, right? It's, it's not perhaps as, um, liberal as, as like the kind of diet that I describe as our ultimate human diet human and diet, deep nutrition. Yeah. Right. There's things that you can't have like a whole 30 also is, is pretty restrictive compared to what I, I recommend, because I really I, I really believe that if you get the seed oils out first, then your digestive system can tolerate a lot more diversity. Right. While you're stressed with all these vegetable oils and inflammation in your gut, distorting your microbiome, you don't know what your digestive system is really capable of handling because it's got all this inflammation all the time that it's dealing with too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the extreme example of that is some children now really can eat like, I mean, I hear from parents all the time that they, they can eat only just, you know, like three things, you know, like uh, chicken and uh, one kind of fruit. That is the extreme example of exactly what I'm talking about. Like your digestive system, when it is stressed by inflammation is not going to be able to handle very much diversity. It's a lot of different 
things that your immune system has to, your immune system in your gut, I'm talking about, has to recognize and not be afraid of or confused is a pathogen and start attacking. And so I think part of the reason we have so many people with food intolerances now is because- I was because, just going to ask you that. Yeah. Go ahead, please. Because it's exactly where my mind was going is what if certain people have food intolerances and then they clean up their diet and remove these seed oils? Could it possibly help to allow now to, now I'm not talking allergies, which if you want to go there, you can, but I'm talking intolerances to be able to bring certain foods back into their diet just by calming that inflammation. Yes, absolutely. So, right. The difference between intolerance and allergy in, in my mind um, is like intolerance is you're intolerant, intolerant to bleach, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's an irritant um, and certain foods can be more irritating than others because you've got all this inflammation all the time. So for example, red meat, a lot of people have a hard time with that. Well, there's iron in red meat and iron is one of, uh, it's a mineral and it's inner, it's, it's one of the things that makes the seed oils worse. It kind of makes them go off, right? Remember how I said they were unstable? Well, the molecules of the, the fatty acids there, they interact with iron and oxygen and that makes them fly apart. So red meat has way more iron than white meat. So I believe that's one reason why when people eliminate the seed oils, they find they can start eating more, a little bit more. They can start adding in some red meat. Maybe they couldn't before. So little things like that. That's like kind of an example of what I meant by like an intolerance versus an allergy. And an allergy is where your immune system is now reacting to it. And your immune system is reacting to it because it thinks it's a pathogen that it has to destroy. So it's confused. Your poor immune system is confused by all that inflammation. Um, and on my website, I have a uh, like a, a video about this where I talk about gluten intolerance because that's one of the most common food intolerances and how it's related to seed oils. But my website is so disorganized. What you have to do is go to the search bar and type in gluten intolerance and then the video will come up. It's getting revamped. My website won't forever be <laughs> disorganized. So always a work in progress, right? I know I, I hear you, especially when it comes to websites. One of the things I want to go back to the sugar for a second, because you were talking about in your book, you mentioned how you completely eliminated your sugar cravings. And I'd love you to tell us a little bit about how you did that and how long does it take? And now again, eliminating the seed oils and, you know, cleaning up our diet is all part of it. But what does it take? So, you know, so for example, myself, now I'm wearing and this. I'm very excited about it. I got myself one of the continuous oh. glucose monitors. It's like my favorite new toy. And I've had this now for a couple of months and I kind of, it has completely changed the way I eat and look at, you know, blood sugar and how I look at food and it's fabulous. And normally this is for people who have diabetes, but I really wanted to understand as a nutritionist and as somebody who's helping all of you understand blood sugar and what we're eating, I wanted to go the extra mile just to really understand how my blood sugar in particular was affected by certain foods that I'm eating. And oh my gosh, Kate, my eyes have been so open in terms of what I'm eating and how things affect our blood sugar. So I want to go back there for a minute because I'd love you to share with our audience, first of all, what you did to eliminate your sugar cravings and what you recommend they could do to try to help them with theirs. Okay. Yeah, Andrea. So I want to just paint the picture of what a hopeless sugarholic I was. <laughs> and I, I tell this story in the book, but um, I was so addicted to Starbucks co mocha frappuccinos 
that when I was stationed for a job for six weeks in Jamestown, North Dakota, the nearest Starbucks was a hundred miles away in Fargo. And I could only go there on the weekends, but I would go there every weekend. And um, one time I went there and the lady in front of me ordered the last of the mix. So I was like so devastated it was as if you told me my cat had died. I mean, like I, I was just out of it. You know, I was like, what am I going to do? I, I, I've been looking forward to that all week. Right. So it was a major, major part of my life was the sugar buzz that I would get. And, uh, and by the way, I didn't, I didn't actually think I had a problem at that point in time. <laughs> like my husband did, it was clear to everyone around me, but <laughs> not to me. So uh, the way I solved that problem was by the easy thing that I did that I didn't even know I was doing was by including more of these healthy fats in my diet. I started getting raw cream. I had it shipped in from California, which at that time was legal and it was very expensive, but I, I, um, it was my new addiction actually was the cream from raw, raw cream from organic pastures that, um, came from California to Hawaii in frozen, frozen, you know, state. So, um, and it was just really, really delicious. So I actually gradually, I did two things at once. I started doing the healthier fats that gave my brain the confidence that there was, now there was energy in my bloodstream, right? So because my body fat was filled up with these unhealthy fatty acids, so it lost confidence in fat. And so when you start eating healthy fats, it gives your brain energy from fat, Um I mean, indirectly, right? So what's what's actually happening is that it's giving your other cells in your body more more energy from fat, and that saves the sugar, what little sugar there is for your brain. And sometimes you can make ketones and yada. But um, but so so my brain started getting more energy, and then I decided that I was going to cut down on sugar, and that was actually the hardest thing was making the decision that I was going to cut down. But I, I I did it gradually, and that is really key. I found if people really have a terrifically strong sweet tooth you have to gradually cut down and I didn't notice the loss of you know pleasure from from drinking gradually less sugar in my coffee that I had made I had like a caramel syrup that I made from scratch so I could get tons of sugar into it it was like a quarter cup per dose and um and I gradually cut down on how much I was using. And, and that gradualness was key to me, like not freaking out, right? I, I never had that experience of like, this is the last day, you know, blah, blah, blah. what am I going to do? <laughs> um, so, I, so I just gradually, um, and then one day I didn't have it because I, tra- I was traveling and it was just fine. My coffee, was, this was what I would do in the morning was have coffee. Well, actually it was mostly milk and cream now with a little bit of cold brewed coffee added in. And I had added that very sweet mix, but I didn't have it with me. And so I just didn't put it in there. And I was shocked because I was like, this is still good. It's actually pretty sweet because there was a good amount of sugar in milk. So, um, so that's how it worked for me. But, but uh, you know, what I had done that I didn't mention yet, that not everybody, you know, you have to do this first for if you have a serious sweet tooth and you want to do something about it, you have to kind of consolidate all of the sweetness that you're going to have into just one time a day, because you have to have that, um, that control and that rule of like, okay, well, at least I've got this thing to look forward to at, you know, um, 
okay, 11.30, that's 27 minutes from now, I'm going to have my special treat, right? So you, you put it all into that one time of day um, and then speaking as an addict, <laughs> you know, you have that, you have that so that you don't feel like, you know, you're never going to get it again ever. Right. So you just have it at once and then you start cutting back and, and it's a much more, uh, a much less traumatic process because <laughs> I, you know, I couldn't have handled it if, if somebody had told me that I have to just go cold Turkey one day, because yeah, I, I don't think I ever would have done it. Yeah, no, that would be difficult. What are your thoughts on stevia, erythritol, and monk fruit? So if you're somebody like me, that's a slippery slope. It's just going to get you back into whatever you're sticking that thing in. You're going to end up wanting it all the time. It's going to become the daily focus of your life. It's going to, you're probably going to overeat it. Um, you know, while they don't have the problems that sugar do in terms, that sugar has in terms of spiking your insulin um, in terms of altering your gut flora, because you're consuming so little of them usually. Yeah. Um, you don't have the glycation in your blood sugar. You don't get the spike in your blood sugar. You don't get those problems. But if you, so, so, so it's okay for some people, but for somebody like me, uh, where I really have an issue with sweets, it's not a good solution, I, I don't think. Um, now, if somebody is a diabetic, I think that, uh, you know, a type two diabetic and their blood sugars just go out of control when they have something with actual sugar in there, I would say that it might be something you could work in. But I, I would really honestly want somebody to not have to do that on their own. I, I would like it if somebody was, you know, if you could get guidance from somebody, if you're listening to me now and you have type two diabetes, um, because really the thing that is so important is for you to feel like you're in control of when you eat your sweets. Hmm. You know, maybe, maybe not always in control of the amount that you're going to eat at any given time, but at least when you're yeah. going to eat them. And what I find interesting too, is that once you eliminate sugar and you are drastically have reduced it, like you said before, like things naturally taste sweet. So you're like, if you bring back the sweetness and I'm not even talking about artificial sweeteners, which by the way, we'll go to in a minute, but I'm talking about just natural sweetness in food. So for example, I did a TV segment the other day and I just, I, I hadn't eaten and I wanted to, I was doing intermittent fasting. And then I was like, it was just one of those crazy days, which I normally don't have. And I had a piece of fruit with like dark chocolate, the chocolate had no sweetener, but it was it was like a chocolate covered cherry. And I took a little bite from it. And I haven't really been eating a lot of fruits because I've been really watching my sugars. And wow, I was like, whoa, it was so sweet, Kate. I actually had to spit it out. I could not believe how far I've come in just a short amount of time in terms of understanding that sweetness or just changing our taste buds. And I want to go back to the artificial sweeteners for a second because they are one of the scary seven ingredients. And artificial sweeteners are like in many cases, hundreds of times sweeter than sugar. So you can just imagine if you're chewing gum, it has three different types of artificial sweeteners in it. it. It's that that just gum to me is just wow. It's a whole other ball game. But if you're too, you know you're drinking diet soda and you're having anything that says diet on it or has these artificial sweeteners, then it's just even worse for you because those will mess with your blood sugar. Those will cause issues for you down the road, and those will keep that sweet tooth going. In my opinion, right, Kate? Yeah. And the other thing that they do that you mentioned, you touched on it, but um, I just want people to really hear this is that they deprive you of appreciating the natural sweetness oh, yeah. in stuff like carrots. I mean, the, the first time somebody, I had a friend when I was growing up whose mom was like, so into, it was like the hippie era. Um, and she was so into all this macrobiotic, everything. And they never had like 
normal sugar or anything in their house. And I remember her telling me that carrots tasted sweet. And I thought she was insane. <laughs> like, what? Because yeah. I'm like, carrots taste like cardboard. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> but no, appreciate I, it, right? they're actually sweet. They're so sweet. And it's so true. <laughs> and, it, and you know, it's funny. You're talked about yourself in terms of your sugar, being a sugar um, addict. I used to be one of those artificial sweetener addicts. Look, I would go to the coffee house every morning and I would take five of the you know little packets. I would open them up, five or six of them, put them into a large coffee. And that's what I was drinking every single day on top of the diet soda that I was drinking. Like it was just, I could not get enough artificial sweeteners into my diet. And I remember when I completely eliminated them because this is when I went back to nutrition school all those years ago and learned <laughs> how bad they were for me. I eliminated them and it took a while to retrain my taste buds. So I, I do want to say, and I want to be encouraging if you decide, and I hope you decide really after listening to today's podcast and watching today's show, I hope you decide to eliminate artificial sweeteners from your diet if you are still consuming them and just retrain your taste buds. Give yourself some time. You will retrain it, whether you're removing the artificial sweeteners or even just anything very, very sweet from your diet because you want to watch for insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes. It's really important that we, we keep that in mind because it will retrain. It takes a bit of time, but it will happen. And then when you go back to it, you'll be like, whoa, so sweet. Like I couldn't even touch artificial sweeteners now because they would be like, yeah. I mean, if I'm spitting out a cherry, like I can only imagine what an artificial sweetener that's like thousand, you know, in some cases, what, 10,000 times sweeter than sugar. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. You're losing the addiction too. So it's not just that you're gaining the actual ability to taste again, you're also losing that uh, that loss of control over the stuff, right? That, that where it's taking over your mind, it's taking over your day. Your life is focused on, you know, oh my God, I don't get another break at work until, you know, two hours from now. And that's when I'm going to have my treat, you know? And I just, I know that that's what that's like that for somebody who's addicted to sugar, because I was like that. And, and I know that there's just no possible way that willpower is going to sustain that kind of thing. And so what we've just been talking about, um, you and I is, is that there's, you can, it's almost like hacking your willpower, mm -hmm. right? You're giving yeah. your brain healthy fats. So it doesn't focus and obsess about sugar. And then you dial back the amount so that it's not this like addicted brain amount of sweet that you need to have to get your hit because that's really what it is it's a yeah. hit yeah you just like any addicting substance you need more and more of it to get the same hit over time yeah and i want to before we end the interview i do want to um talk about what those healthy oils are i just want to stay on sugar for a second but i don't want to forget and i'm going to write it down so i don't forget what are the healthy oils and <laughs> i think it's an important thing to mention because for people who are listening be like wait tell me what are the oils that i should be eating so i don't want to forget to say that but you're absolutely right and it is getting rid of that hit so i, I want to go back and staying on the sugar topic for a second i want to go to fruit because i know in the book you talk about fruit and your thoughts on eating fruit and as a nutritionist i mean for me it's all about eating whole unprocessed foods we talk about eating fruit a lot. What are your thoughts on it? So we have fruits now that humans have been genetically selecting for thousands of years to be sugar bombs. <laughs> so it's, it's true. There's, there's all kinds of other good stuff that comes along with fruit, but that package is so much bigger calorie wise than it used to be per amount of nutrient that's in there. And, and so an apple now has about 30 grams of carbs. A Hershey's candy bar has less than that. It has 22 grams of carbs. So let's, I mean, just putting in that perspective, right? A, a sour apple or a crab apple, that's what 
fruit, you know, originated from in nature. That's what, you know, animals <laughs> who are fruit eaters, it's that, um, that's sour. It's really sour. And there's a lot more nutrition in all those bitter flavor components than, than there is in sugar. So that's like, that's like my main message about fruit. So what you're saying is, and don't eat so much fruit, even though it's nature's candy, don't eat so much fruit, minimize it. Are there any fruits that in your opinion, so obviously you said sour apples, but is there any, are there any other fruits in your opinion that are better? So any of the berries or maybe a lemon, like, is there something that's better that if people do love eating their fruits that they can eat in moderation or let, you know, even less in moderation? Yeah, absolutely. Like the less sweet, the more better, right? So like grapefruit and um, I had a secretary who actually would eat onions. I mean, not onions, lemons. She would just slice them and eat them like they were oranges. But uh, most people don't do that because they're too sour. Um, and, but berries, exactly like you said. And then melons, um, those have so much water that like you get like this an, a delightfully satisfying cold kind of crunch that to bite your sink your teeth into without too much sugar per per dose. Yeah. It's also the amount too, right? So if you want to have an apple, maybe have half an apple. Or if you want to have, you know, something a cup of blueberries or blueberries, have like a quarter cup or half a cup. Because I know that now that I've had my continuous glucose monitor, I notice that the amount plays a huge, the quantity plays a huge amount in where my blood sugar is going. And that's been that's been interesting and eye-opening for me. So I can maybe tolerate and everybody's different in terms of what they can can tolerate and not when it comes to blood sugar, but looking at that quantity would probably be a good idea too, right? Absolutely. You know, I, the way I talk about it is, um, is I say, uh, think of it a little bit like a spice, right? Like you wouldn't add a whole ton of cinnamon to something. Well, you don't want to add too much fruit either. I mean, you don't, you don't do like a, just a little pinch, but just maybe a, a small handful of blueberries or something like that on a yogurt parfait with a lot of nuts, um, is, is going to be good. Cause if you could keep it to like less than five grams of sugar per, uh, you know, per, per meal, then that's, I think, really safe territory just in terms of over relying on sweetness in every bite to yeah. be satisfied with the food. Which is great advice. Just really quickly, just as a definition for our listeners, you talked about carbohydrates and I want to make sure that we explain what that means versus sugar. So if you're saying an apple has 30, 30 grams of carbs, how does that relate in terms of sugar? So we can make the connection. So it, carbohydrates break down in, during the process of digestion into sugar. Um, carbohydrate is the worst possible term to put on a nutrition label because it's it, it's kind of like the parent um, the parent term for things that have nothing to do with each other uh, nutrition wise. Right, a, a fiber is also a carbohydrate right? And fiber doesn't have any calories and it nourishes the gut microbiome. Yeah. Wood is also a carbohydrate, right? <laughs> so you can have wood shavings in there and yes, they do put um, uh, sawdust in like some cellulose. products just to bump up the fiber. Yeah. Um, but so, so, so yeah, so, but it's a confusing term. I wish they didn't use it. What they should have on there is starch sugar, you know, whether it's added sugar or not, doesn't matter, right? Whether, whether jelly, some of that sugar came from the fruit itself. And some of the sugar came from high fructose corn syrup. It doesn't matter to your bloodstream. Once it's all broken down, it's going to be fructose and um, glucose, just like 
the, the fruit sugar. So it, it doesn't matter whether it's added. So that's just worthless information that they waste on that very valuable little informational space that they have. They should have starch on there. So if anybody from the government or wants to grow up and work in the government one day, <laughs> that please make it sugar, to, you know, total sugars, and then starches, and then, uh, different kinds of fiber. And please make that make sense too, because that's a whole other discussion. The, the yeah. like the soluble and insoluble and stuff. I could not agree more. <laughs> I absolutely agree. All right. Well, we're going to come to the end of our interview. Although, okay. Like I said at the beginning, I could talk to you forever <laughs> because I love, this is like, I'm like the happiest person right now. All right. So we're going to circle back. I did not want to forget to ask you, let's go over the list of the good and the bad oils. So the ones that you're like, yep, these are great. You can have. And then these are the ones you should absolutely, I know we said the ones to stay away from, but let's talk about the complete list. We'll also put them below under our show notes in the podcast, but also on YouTube. So please take it away. Yeah. So the good oils are traditional oils and you can think about it as you know what it tastes like because it has taste. So olive oil, coconut oil, which is technically a fat at most room temperature uh, because it's solid. That's the difference between fat and oils, fat is solid at room temperature. Um, peanut oil. Uh, a lot of people want to ask me more about that one. So feel free if you. Yes, I do want to talk about that one. So yes. <laughs> Um, I even recommend sesame oil, even though it's high in PUFA, but it has to do with the processing. Um, and, uh, let's see what's in the avocado oil that didn't really exist actually when I first started writing deep nutrition, but that's a good one too. Um, and palm oil. And that, I know that you and, like, and palm oil. right. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank you. Palm oil. But, um, <laughs> but then there's fats, healthy fats too. So butter and, uh, what else is there? Well, uh, I guess well, what's that nuts and seeds. Yes. Yes. Foods that are naturally very high in fat. Um, and that includes things like sour cream and, um, cream cheese and cream, but also tallow, lard, bacon, grease. Um, so if you make bacon, save the grease, especially if it's nitrate free, because, hmm. um, uh, you know, that's, that's much healthier, more expensive, which is the um, only, if you're going to eat bacon, please make sure it's nitrate free. <laughs> please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then the ones that are unhealthy, I know you talked about canola oil, which I, well, I have a question regarding canola oil. What if it is organic and it's cold pressed canola oil? Doesn't matter. So the thing is that uh, it's the refining and the bleaching and the deodorizing that really makes it that puts the toxins in the bottle as they are sitting there on the shelves. You cannot find a bottle of canola oil or any of these oils that has zero toxin in it um, because they're that unstable. And the refining, bleaching, and deodorizing basically strips it from uh, strips the natural antioxidants away and strips out the minerals um, and and then alters the chemical composition of it because the the bleaching process just is actually a makes a chemical change occur. And that too creates more unstable, unhealthy fats. So, um, so it doesn't matter. So it's a really good question. Um, there's just no good canola oil out there. I'm sorry, but people might be wondering if they know the composition of, of sesame oil, cause that's also pretty high in, um, polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, sorry, you might be hearing my German shepherd night right now because I think we're probably going to be getting an Amazon delivery or something. Anyway, he's he's very attuned to those Amazon deliveries. Um, so uh, the, uh, the sesame is a very oily seed that yields its oil easily without the harsh processing so that you don't need the refining. 
steps. So it just kind of drips out of there. Because again, thanks to um, human agriculture, we have selected for sesame seeds uh, to be more oily, right? Just we, we, we pick the ones, the plants that did a good job for us. And so these things have been, you know, over many thousands of years, kind of made safe for human consumption because they're they're more oily and they have lots and lots of antioxidants in there and other stabilizers in there that the seed has so that the seed itself doesn't get exposed to toxic chemicals but we've bred um you know corn and soy and canola so that it doesn't have to be really a a seed that can survive in nature. We take care of it. We chill the seeds, you know, we, 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 so that it's just, they're completely different animals. The, the, the traditional sesame oil is actually a completely a traditional product. I, I think it comes from somewhere in the middle East. And so it's been used for, it has a culinary history of many thousands of years. You could extract it without harsh chemicals, the same way as you can get oil from an olive with a simple stone press, and you can just make coconut oil by mashing it all up and letting the oil rise to the top. So these very non-intensive, non-industrial processes um, yield a wonderful, delicious oil, and those are nutritious too. So we want to avoid then the sunflower oil, canola oil, safflower oil, soy oil, corn oil, and am I missing any there? Cottonseed. Cottonseed. Well, cottonseed also, interestingly enough, is generally trans fats in the label anyway. So it's generally partially hydrogenated cottonseed. Yes. I've seen it so often on the label. So yes, <laughs> bye-bye, no trans fats. We talk about that a lot of the Scary 7. Let's go back to peanut oil just before we wrap up because peanut oil is a polyunsaturated fat. So why do you say that's a healthier oil? Right. So it's similar concept to the sesame. So um, even though that it does have more polyunsaturated fatty acids than things like olive oil, um, it, it's also been a, a food that we have cultured over years and gen- many, 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 many thousands of years. It comes from Africa where they called it groundnut. Um, and and so it also yields its oil very easily. And so therefore you, ha- you can get unrefined peanut oil, which I really only recommend unrefined peanut oil that um, doesn't, you know, it doesn't need the refining stuff so that it has, still has all its antioxidants. It has its minerals in there and um, the vitamins, you know, the, when I say antioxidants and oil, a lot of them are vitamins. So it has vitamin E. Um, and so, so that's why I recommend it. And, um, and it actually, you know, when you test it, it stands up against olive oil pretty comparably when you test it for cooking, you know, when they look at, see how fast does it break down because it has so much stabilizer. What's that? The smoke point you mean? No. Oh gosh. This is a whole other conversation, but yes, <laughs> smoke point is a, is something that was created to sell seed oils. It's not something to pay attention to. What you need to pay attention to is much harder to actually measure. Um, and it's the the molecular breakdown products, the, the oxidation products. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole science of how to actually analyze that. Um, but uh, but that's, that's what I'm talking about is it breaks down how these molecules fly apart. There's a whole profile of new chemicals that are created that exist for a little while, then they themselves break down. So it's like this whole massive, uh, graph of new things that came from the breakdown products wow. of canola or some or any of the other very highly degradable products, and so that's the way to compare culinary oils. And um, and it there is no consumer friendly like way of talking about that yet. 
um, like smoke point, which is just a talking point, but it is not a valid measure of anything. Uh, it actually, it, what it, you know what it really comes from? What? Two things. The There's not protein in there because protein will burn. Right. And the free fatty acids um, mm-hmm. have been removed because they have lower uh, ignition temperatures. Hmm. But it, because the smoke point is high, um, it allows people in restaurants to overcook stuff, right? Because you should have, you know, you shouldn't overcook your heat destroys nutrition. Right. So it'll destroy the nutrition in whatever meat or whatever thing you're cooking. So you don't want to do high smoke point cooking. You want to stir your food. You want to use, you want to get a little brown on the outside for color and flavor, but you don't want to have it sit at 400 degrees for a long time. So, so it's an actually, it is a horrible idea. The, the idea that um, we should pay attention to smoke point, but this is a whole, this is a very technical topic. And so yeah. if you hadn't run into it before, uh, you know, you, you're not alone because I, I am having these conversations all the time with people who are, who've been in this health space, but they've never run into it because there is not a consumer friendly term for what are those breakdown products. Wow. I love it. I would love to have a conversation on another podcast about that, because to me, I find that fascinating because I have definitely thought about uh, smoke points. So I'd love to know the history and how that came to be in terms of marketing. So we're going to park that because I find that absolutely fascinating. But my question about peanut oil is this. So what I'm familiar with is that peanuts contain aflatoxins. So what, so let's put aside the allergy component of peanut oil, but what about when it's processed or when it's, if it's unrefined, does it still contain the aflatoxins, which in my opinion, always when I thought about, when I think about peanuts or I think about peanut oil, that's what comes to mind for me. Right. So the aflatoxin is a fungus that grows on um, stored food products, right? Stored plants, right? So it can grow on corn. It can grow on rice. It can be in everything, not just peanuts, but but because um, it was found in peanut butter before we had things like almond butter, um, it was, and peanut, every child was eating peanut butter. It was kind of like all the rage to talk about it back when they first discovered it, which, you know, to my mind was in the seventies, but it might've been even earlier than that. That's just when I first heard about this sort of thing. Um, Cause I was actually alive back then. <sighs> but um so, uh, yeah, so there's many, many foods that are contaminated with aflatoxin, but, um, the, the, so if it's fresher, the more it sits, the, the more aflatoxin it's going to have. And so that has to do with something about the food supply that we never measure. We don't have a way really of talking about it intelligently. How long has this food sat, but whatever food it is, the longer it's sat, the more likely it is to be contaminated with aflatoxins or alternatively, with antifungal spray because they're trying to control that because they know they're going to let it sit for a long time, um, and so, so there you go. And um, and it was found in peanut butter, I think, because peanut butter, you know, is it's ground up. Whereas if you're eating fresh peanuts and you see mold on it, you're not gonna you're not gonna eat it, right? And so the fresher peanuts go into the peanuts that you eat you know, you break it. It was really, these are not common now, but that used to be the major way to buy peanuts was you, you would open them up, right? They'd be in that little pod. Um, and if that was all moldy, well, actually the pod itself prevents mold too, right? So, um, because that has all, nature has all that figured out. <laughs> I don't want the thing to go to mold or it won't grow. So, so compared to that, the peanuts going into peanut butter are generally lower quality. Now that's all changed now because nobody really eats pod peanuts anymore. So, 
you know, who knows, but um, somebody, you know, who really likes assessing food quality should help us. There should be a way to track, like, how long has this thing sat? How long, how long ago was this? I would love it if this existed for spices, for example, right? Like how old are your spices? Because if they're a month old, that's like about as good as you could get in India where they grow them, but it, it might be three years old. And so there's a whole different cinnamon by then, but that's another discussion. I digress. No, but thank you for all of that. Well, Kate, honestly, this has been an absolute pleasure and honor to interview you. And I'm so happy that you came on our show. Is there anything before we end the interview that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, please do come to my website, drkate.com and sign up to my newsletter. I don't bombard you with stuff because I really don't have anything to sell. So I really just like, I put a newsletter together maybe once a month <laughs> if I'm being good. Um, but what's there is a lot of resources and references. Like I have a list of good fats and bad and um, we didn't talk about it, but there's two other bad fats, but they're not on labels. So we don't, we don't need to talk about them for today's discussion, but I call them the hateful eight. So there's, there's that there that I want people to know about. It affects you when you're eating out at restaurants a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, and that's super important because a lot of people, you know, think that they're doing fine dining uh, because it's a sit down restaurant and not McDonald's. But actually, the quality of the, the deep fried food is better at McDonald's wow. because uh, they because they know what they're doing to try to stabilize the oils. So so anyway, but please visit my website and sign up. And um, I would love it if you would read Deep Nutrition. <laughs> and can you please give a little bit of a plug for your newest book if they want to buy that too? Absolutely. Yeah. So my newest book, The Fat Burn, Deep Nutrition is kind of like, if you want to have the ultimate nutrition, the ultimate human diet, you know, you want to optimize everything. Um, you want to go to the nth degree, or at least just understand nutrition and like, you know, stop being confused about stuff. That's what I did Deep Nutrition for. And so um, The Fat Burn Fix is is what is the bare minimum that you can do here to lose weight and, um, you know, uh, reverse your diabetes. This is really my weight loss book. Deep nutrition isn't, it will help you lose weight, but the fat burn fix, which I happen to have a copy of right under deep nutrition, um, is, is really, uh, you know, my protocol for helping people lose weight and reverse their diabetes. And I take you through, how to assess the health of your metabolism so you know when you're ready for things like the keto diet or intermittent fasting. I love it. And that will be our next interview. Thank, <laughs> thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks so much for having me on, Andrew. This has been fun.